You know, one day the, the disciples, they asked Jesus, teach us how to pray. And so he teaches them the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, the whole go of it. And I've heard a lot of people talk about that prayer that, well, we're not being asked to remember a recited prayer, but actually culturally and historically, that's exactly what they're asking for. And the structure of Jesus' prayer is exactly what he gave him that we actually are intended to memorize that prayer and to recite it and to reflect on it. You see, teachers would have these prayers that were the central prayer for who they were, and it wasn't necessarily always the center of their point. The Lord's Prayer may not be the center of the gospel, but it is the orienting prayer that a disciple would say to orient themselves every morning. Uh, in fact, did you know the word orient comes from morning? Oriental is Latin for land of the rising sun. So as the sun would come up in the east, you would see it. If that's east and that's west, we're going north, we're going in that direction. It's orienting. So every day, be orienting, being set up, remembering where, the, where east, north, south, west, and all those things are. And so this prayer is something we're supposed to think about and reflect on in living this life in this chapter and now. And he opens up with something I think that's worth noting. He says, uh, you know, opens up, we all know, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. But that first line, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth like it is in heaven is very profound. It reflects on something that's critical, that God's will is done in earth and it's done in heaven, but it's not the same. That in heaven is God's perfect will. And on earth is his sovereign will. That not everything on this world happens the way God wants it to be, but he is like the, the, the gutter guards at a bowling alley to bounce things along to get to where it will be. He will be sovereign over it, but it will not be perfectly what he wanted. A great example of this comes from the Old Testament. God wanted someone like David to be king. Someone who, he, who was a, a man after his own heart and loved God. But the people were arrogant and stuck in their ways, and they wanted a mighty, tall, strong man king. So he gave them exactly what they wanted. He put Saul in, though he did not want Saul as his perfect will to be king, but he was sovereign, and he would use Saul to reflect back at them their own mistakes and failures. They would see in Saul weaknesses and problems with themselves that when he is deposed as king, they would finally be repentant and ready to receive David. We see this thing to where God has a perfect will in heaven and on earth he has a sovereign will. And we pray, God, we pray for the day when your will will be done on earth like it is in heaven. When your perfect will is here, not God's comfort in death and sorrow, but no death and sorrow. Not trying to make up for or or get get things guided where rebellions knocked it off track, but to where things are orderly and harmonious and perfect. This community of believers that is the church is this first fruits, the first ones to do it, the first ones to to do as as the best they can to be God's will on earth as it is in heaven. And we would expect then that that body of people, that gathering would be different, really different. And different isn't always easy, but different is good. To a dead and dying world, different is what they want. In 2021, I had neurological surgery. I had a tumor removed from my pituitary gland. And if you don't know the pituitary, they call it the the quarterback of the hormone system. All hormone systems in your body are commanded from that one. So if you have a problem with it, it can create some very serious problems. 
It's the second surgery I had. They, they, they removed the tumor. It was painful. It was very difficult. Uh, battled the way through it. Got to be sent home from OHSU. And I was home for two days, and I kept experiencing what felt like washing up on the shores of death. Every morning, I, my face would go numb, and I couldn't hear. I couldn't see, and I had to lay on the ground. It happened two mornings in a row. started to happen at night, and I said, I, I, this can't be right. Something's off. So we went to the ER, and they said, wow, what you're describing sounds like an adrenal crash. Let's get some blood work done on you. They pulled my blood. If you don't know what adrenal crash is, it's the same thing that like a, a drug user goes through when they get the bends when they're coming off of it. It's just this horrific death-feeling crash in your hormone system. And so I went in, and they, they checked my blood, and they said, everything seems fine. They said, your blood sodium is low, but it's not low enough to cause an adrenal crash. We don't know what's wrong with you. And if you've ever had something wrong with you and the doctor has to say, I don't know what's wrong with you, it's really scary. Doctor after doctor, they were coming in and, and they're just saying, we don't know what's wrong. We don't know what's wrong. We don't know what's wrong. I was there for hours and hours. And neurology, endocrinology, the, the departments that did my surgery are busy. They can't come see me. So it's ER doctors. And they're just not specialized. They are trained and they're smart. They're brilliant people. But when Endrican finally came down after doctor and nurse and everyone's saying, we don't know why. We don't know why you, like, you, you can hardly see me right now and hear me. We don't know why this scary thing is happening. And I'm telling you, when your hormone quarterback is down, your hormones are all over the place. I'm extremely emotional. I'm trying to articulate, trying not to cry, asking him what's going on with me. They can't tell me. So finally, Endrican comes down, the hormone doctors, and they say, well, no, and they actually they argued with the ER doctor in the room. They said, well, no, he just had pituitary surgery. Those sodium levels are well low enough that if you have a wounded pituitary, he would go into adrenal failure. This has been adrenal failure. And so they said, they said okay, so what we're going to do is it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not going to be the funnest thing you've ever done, Sam, but you're going to have to eat really salty food and not drink any water for days. Uh, also known as the American diet. But... Uh, <laughs> And so, if you don't know, I probably shouldn't tell you this. There's a secret menu at OHSU they don't want you to know about, but they give you the menu if they ask for it. It's all the food that's like, I think was intended, like, you're going to die. Here's your last meal. It's biscuits and gravy. It's all kinds of stuff loaded with salt. So they gave me the secret menu, and like, you have to order off this menu. But it was tough. I mean, so thirsty, but you can't drink anything. But I welcomed that, I guess, seemingly bad news with open arms because it was finally different. Everyone else is saying, well, but we don't know what's, what, what looks for it. And I'm thinking, am I ever going to come out of this room? Am I ever going to be who I was before? And to have someone say, yes, it's not going to be fun, but here's the therapy, and in a few days, your blood sodium levels will be back up, your pituitary is starting to launch again, you're going to be okay. I wanted different. We want different. We want something that's going to be different. People around us want what is different, and heaven is different. Handles things differently, and the community is different. So the body of Christ is different, and it's the thing we've so much wanted. With that in mind, I'm going to read uh, from Ephesians. We're going to start in verse, chapter 25. Excuse me, chapter 25. I'm in, I'm in the cult version now. Now, chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord I know. You're all thinking, why is he going there today? Well, here we go. It's not Mother's Day. Um, 
For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives also should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her uh, by the washing with the word, th- or by the, excuse, washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle and without any blemish, uh, and holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has ever hated their own body, but they feed it and care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man would leave his mother and father and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am speaking of Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. This is a, there's a few things Paul is doing in this passage that's critical. We have to understand something first, and it's what I would call the signal to the culture around him. There is this interesting thing. Romans and, and Greeks were afraid of Eastern religions, particularly the popular ones, Judaism and Christianity. They feared that the spread of religion in the West was going to erode one of the most important structures for Roman society, and that was the family and how it was structured and the importance of it. In Roman society, everything was based on the patron system. And it's hard maybe for us to understand this unless you've seen the godfather, then you've seen a patron system. They go to Vito Corleone. That's the dad's name, right? The godfather. They go to him to to solve a problem. He's in charge of the whole family. The whole family is ordered around his authority. This is very much how they upheld their rules. A man would be like king, a royal, and his family upholding law and making provisions for everybody else, taking care of them and holding them accountable. And this was an idea of not just taking care of social needs, like paying for kids that needed money or provisions and certain things, but it was very much seen as the first form of law enforcement. So you could say family values to some degree was the bedrock of Roman society. And honestly, uh, no society's found a great replacement for that either. If, you th- if I think about it, when I was first driving, I didn't wear a seatbelt and drive the speed limit because I was afraid of officer so-and-so. I was afraid of officer mom and dad. They're the ones that could take my license away. And when you don't steal from a store, it's not often the store clerk's authority that you think of. It's the fact that your mom and dad told you not to. And kids that are raised with absent parents, or no parents at all, uh, tend to find themselves having to have law enforced by law enforcement, which is one of the issues that we see in every society. Our morality and mode of life is imported to us from home. It's where we find survival, everyday resources, our sense of safety. And it's where we're raised, informed in how we how to think and who we are. And so if you're wondering, God is absolutely forming your family in the household. It would be critical in that space to submit in everything you do to the overparent, the one who is over all things, because that is the most fundamental place before school, before TV, all the things we worry about encroaching on our space. As long as we're the family, we will always be the most powerful. So wield that power well. So Paul wants to affirm a value that he sees as being redeemable, and he wants to do it publicly. 
because he intends, yes, to inform believers of how Christ would want their homes run, but he also wants to ease tension for the churches that he's planted, that other people would hear the church is not here to erode and break down the family system. Because bear in mind, everything Paul has said, for the most part, they've heard. It'd be like going to a room of Americans and telling Americans, a good work ethic is a valuable thing. You're like, yeah, I know, I live in that country. We say that all the time. What's interesting to look at is uh, how he uses it, how it turns things upside down in many regards. There's two things we'll look at today. One is how how Paul modifies this common value. He does not say it like the Romans. He's not fortifying everything they've said. He has some corrections for them and how he uses it. To understand how he modifies it, we have to understand when Romans said, for instance, husbands submit to your wife or wives submit to your husbands, what did they mean? Uh, it is no surprise that like most societies, Roman and Greco society was, was rich with misogyny. They actually believed religiously and fundamentally that women were not the same beings as men and they were sub, uh, not subhuman, but they weren't as important, they weren't as valuable, and not just the, the, the ways that they faulted them, but they really believed as a creature, as a being, a woman was less than a man. And this was exacerbated all the more by these enormous age gaps. One of the reasons why in American society we get worried about too big of an age gap between a man and a woman is we're worried about the power struggle. Some guy in his 40s with a teenage girl, we think, well, how, how could she have a voice in this relationship? But that was every Roman and Greek relationship. That was all of the marriages. It would be someone who was just old enough to bear children and someone who has, who's in their 30s, maybe even their 40s, getting married. And so with Roman and Greek commands, it came with something kind of interesting. It had two, a command for both. Women, wives submit to your husbands, husbands command and rule your wives. That's what it sounded like. And the idea was is that they were trying to fortify stability because it was going to be stable. If there was someone who was firmly in power, the family would be stable. And there isn't really a need for trust, for trusting someone because someone has got no options. They're under control of the husband. So you could think of kind of like, you wouldn't have to worry about your wife having an affair if the both of you are stuck on a desert island. She has no options. You don't have to stay up at night worrying about that one. If a man is completely and totally in power and the woman has nothing against him, they thought it would be stable. And so removing all threats uh, meant that safety and trust were obsolete. And that's gonna very much go against what Paul is modeling and what he's talking about. Trust marks the foundation of this new community. That it would be felt first, a deep sense of trust and vulnerability at home, and we would feel that also when we come together as believers. Husbands are told to serve their wives in servant leadership, and that was dramatically different. While it was assumed in everywhere else in their culture that wives would submit to their husbands, Nowhere else in culture did it say that husbands need to servingly, lovingly be submitted to their wives in servant leadership. And this shift was a massive directive to men. You're not ordered to rule your wives. You're ordered to love and submit and to take care of them. So while he affirms certain values of the day, he goes far beyond them. You are not held to this level of a standard. You are way up here. You're not just Roman and Greek anymore. You belong to the kingdom of heaven. 
and both are submitted to one another in love. I heard this, well, I've heard this story many times. At my parents' house, Jake was a baby. I'm not there yet. I'm not a witness, so I'm going to have to retell it here. But the power went out on a really, really cold night near sub-zero temperatures. And so uh, my dad jumps out of bed. My mom brings my big brother into bed, and they're all snuggled up and warm. He's in a pair of underpants, and he runs into the garage, and he's pulling on the generator string. And it was so cold, like his feet are just freezing on the concrete. He can see his breath, and the oil inside of the generator is thick. As things get cold and viscous, it's very thick, so he's thinking he's going to reef it and pull on. He's checking the carburetor. He's trying to fix this. He's out there for at least a half hour, and he's, he's, even though it's that cold, he's sweating because he's going so hard. He's like, I'm going to die, and his knuckles are beaten up. He's, he's, he's just exhausted pulling on this, and then the lights come on. And he turns around, and my mom flipped the switch on in the garage, the power had been on for like 20 minutes. <laughs> I found out yesterday. I had no idea. It's like 10 years later she told him that. He was like, how long has the power been on? She's like, it just came back on, Mark. Come on back to bed. <laughs> 20 minutes. Because here's the thing about servant leadership. Oftentimes being the head looks a lot like being the butt. A servant leader is the one that steps up and goes before and endures discomfort. It's the kind of thing to where if a husband and wife are arguing about what the next family SUV will be, a Suburban or a Highlander, husband wants Suburban, she wants a Highlander, in name of Jesus' honor, he has to put on his big boy pants and go out and get the Highlander. Like, we serve one another. You know, there's a term in, in Greek that's very strong for a head, very commanding, like head of state, head of an army. It's a archon, and it means authority, command, power. It was more common to use, and it's notably absent here. It's not the word that Paul is using. He uses another word, kaphale. It's much gentler. It refers to leadership. It refers to caring, source, prominence one that you would come to to help you through difficult times and not place them upon you. Husbands are to bring order to their households, not through their command, but through care and through service. And that was dramatically different than anyone had ever heard at the time. An enormous shift to culture. Such a life would be a sacrifice unto God and unto family. The command for wives uh, to trust the husbands that lead. Oftentimes in the New Testament, this is given context. Paul, or one of the writers, will say this, and then they actually give context as to why they're saying it, which is an interesting thing at the time. Did you know Romans and Greeks called Christianity a religion for women? Because it greatly ex extended their own protection, care, and rights within a religion, and, and it was the one that postulated to the greatest level to the Western world that men and women are the same level of creation. And so they, there's this interesting thing that as they give this, they don't just give it and then say, okay, I'm done saying my thing about wives, follow your husband's leadership, and then they, they shut up. They actually always give context. This one's a little absent of it, but Paul gives it all the time. It's often said so that the people on the outside won't speak poorly of you. If you're in a society where, where a husband leading and a family having order is critical, if people see people converting to Christianity and the house becomes strife-ridden and divided and difficult, they're probably going to say this Christianity thing is a train wreck. 
Honestly, I say the same thing when I see people who were fundamentalists and legalists, had no heart for God. To them, Christianity was a set of rules. They try to pass their faith onto their kids and they never do. Their kids don't follow the Lord. When I see families like that, I tend to think there's a way not to do it. We all do that. And the society around them would do the same thing. If the house breaks down, if we shift from what you're used to to something completely different, people on the outside will gossip. This teaching is about uh, not keeping women in line. It's about harmony in households, the way men and women, when they are married, submit and serve one another. The church goes beyond norms where wives trust their husbands who are supposed to be leading selflessly and caringly. There's a line in there that can be hard to read, submitted in all things. And I think that's the terrifying thing, um, particularly for women, is, is this idea of submitted in all things. What if, what if he is not trustworthy? On that, I think it's one of the reasons why that that dating phase, premarital courting, whatever you do is so critical because the, the questions you need to ask each other is, is do I think he is, is safe and I can trust that he won't take advantage of me or be difficult with me? And, and meanwhile, the man is asking, do I think that uh, she's going to bring strife and stress and, and is she going to always bring in uh, everything my heart doctor says I shouldn't have? Notice it doesn't say women should submit to men. It's about marriages. So that early phase is critical. But we, want, we think, what do we do? To be submitted in all things is a terrifying thing. It's a cultural norm then and a cultural norm now that we feel safe when we have mutual weaponry. When we have something that disincentivizes the other side of leaving, like a business contract, you pull out of this contract early, you pay your dues. If I can feel safe and secure in my marriage because I know that if he starts to mistreat me, I will divorce and leave. I will take the house or, you know, I will not pay my child support. Whatever it is a person thinks they're going to weaponize and push against the other person, they feel safe because of it. I mean, consider this. It's been nearly a century since nuclear weapons had their first detonation. It's, it's about 80 years. And in 80 years, they've been used in conflict once and never again, despite the fact that every major power in the world has them. What has kept peace up for 80 years? Mutually assured destruction. They call it MAD, M-A-D, mutually assured destruction. It's this promise on both sides that if you launch, we launch. So both sides know that if I fire on my enemy, it's as good as firing on myself and we're all dead. That's how peace is maintained in our world today. It's a remarkable thing. Every time weapons were invented and they go to a new level, it led to not peace. Everyone had them and used them. When they went from the Bronze Age to iron, everyone had iron, war got worse. Iron to steel, war got worse. Steel to gunpowder, war got worse. Nuclear weapons, and everyone's afraid to pull the trigger now. That is what predicates peace in our world. Mutual weaponization. You know, there's a place in Scripture that talks about the Messiah and weapons and peace and how he will administrate them. Isaiah 2.4 says, He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many people. They will beat, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. 
Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. The kingdom of heaven does not keep peace on mutually assured destruction. It keeps peace on de-weaponization and peace, of trust with one another, of both sides looking to the other one's needs and caring for them. And that's a big difference from how we do it. That it isn't a mutually assured promise that divorce will be bad for both of us financially. It is, a, it is not about we could really hurt each other, so you better stay in line. What do I have to disincentivize? But a complete trust that to your detriment, to the detriment of your health and your body, serve your wife. There is nothing in there about you don't have to do it if she is being terrible to you. You serve her. And submit to your husband's leadership in all things. This mutual submission to one another is weaponless. The kingdom of heaven disarms. Paul's point is we feel the first fruits in our home, and he brings it to his greatest point. And we feel it in the body of Christ when we come together. How he modifies it is the mutual trust. How he uses it is like this. It's a true teaching. It's very true on how family households should be run on trust and not mutual weaponization. But it's an example of the way that God fills his community and runs it. The Greek structure makes it really clear that this is all an example of verse 21. Submit to one another, talking to the church, out of reverence to Christ. If Paul wrote in English, he might say, submit to one another in Christ, bullet point number one, first in your marriages. Bullet point two, then in with your children. Bullet point three, then with your employees as he goes through the list further through this. We too, like in a healthy home, need to be submitted and trusting to one another, bowing down in deference at times in the family of God and rising up in times when it's time to be the leader. We too need to leave our armor behind and let the Messiah take those things that we became so familiar with protecting ourselves, weaponization, I never go that deep or that close with people so that I can leave whenever I want. I never uh, open up enough so that people could use anything against me. But we let him guide us with wisdom as his hands work through us to take the weapons we've built and to bend and reforge them into tools that bring life to the community. What does this look like? Well, it looks like rope. Ecclesiastes 4 9 says that, 4 9 through 12 says this. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, uh, one can help the other up. Uh, but pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them. Also, if you lie down together, they can keep warm. Uh, but who can keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. It's such a beautiful part of Ecclesiastes because that final line says it all. If we look at this picture here, this is not two braided rope that comes in together, but it's specifically three because three bows and rises and raises and lifts. And it is the bowing to the rope in front of you and coming back up to serve the one that makes it to where by this incredible act, three separate things can become one. 
that a group of many believers can become one when they are braided together, rising and dropping, submitting and leading at the same time. Trust makes one creation out of many individuals. We need to be willing also here to bow down to everybody and willing to help and serve everybody. To do so with a kind of level of trust that is different. No other organization in the world should be asking you to have this level of trust. But we are beyond an organization. We're a kingdom of heaven that love and trust one another. And we trust and we lead serving one another and accepting service, never saying, I don't need you, I don't need your input, I'm far beyond you. We can't say that to people thinking that there is a hierarchy of things, hierarchy of people. An attitude of mutual submission and trust is what is in heaven, and it's meant to be here on earth. It's meant to be with you. It's meant to be with us. The body is being varied, is uh, about being different. And that different body is what the world needs. It's what you need. A place of trust and change and new made possible by God. I want to pray for us that we could submit to one another and do something very difficult that is countercultural and different, but to face disarmament, to be willing to let go of the things that have protected us and protect us elsewhere, and to take risk with one another here and to be submitted to one another in trust. Lord, I pray today for all the things we hang on to, Lord, one of the things that we do with our weapons of protection is they hold us on the outside. They hold us away from real intimacy and trust with others. We don't want to bow down. We don't want to give deference and be part of the braid, so we stay out. Lord, I pray that there would be such incredible spiritual growth that we never even knew was possible until we began to trust again. And Lord, as, that, as we know one day that prophecy is fulfilled in this world when people will bend weapons of war into tools of agriculture and peace, would that be spiritually true for us today? That the weapons of war we have in our behavior and our beliefs and our self-protection would be reforged in the hands of the Savior for something that could care for the people around us. If we use our discernment to judge and to shrink away, Lord, take that discernment and bend it into something that can reach out and trust and touch and heal. Move within us, God, to change our hearts. God, I pray that this place would be somewhere that feels different that our relationships we have with each other would feel different in this body of Christ. Lord, I pray for our homes, how terrifying it is to even take that kind of trust there. Help us to trust all the more in our homes with each other. God, I pray for uh, blessed marriages. God, I pray for, for new life. God, I pray for uh, your conviction on us to be submitted in loving one another in our homes. And help us carry that back here as well. We thank you, Lord, for your presence with us, always guiding us, always with us, always advocating. Remain with us and change us day to day. In your name we pray, amen.